0: I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We start our new series today in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, but then we're going to focus today on simply verses 1 and 2. We're going to move somewhat slowly through this great book uh, over the next several months, in order to hopefully digest just the, the rich food that we have before us in this, in this book. So I want to encourage you to read the book of Ephesians uh, in, your, in your daily or your weekly devotions uh, from now and all throughout this year as we'll be in it uh, through, throughout uh, the month of May later on this year. So we'll, uh, we'll be here for some time, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this with you. So draw your attention to the reading and to the preaching of God's holy, God's inspired word. Ephesians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him indeed. Let us pray for our time in his word. Please join me. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this marvelous, marvelous book of Ephesians. What an incredible, incredible letter this was that the great apostle wrote, Lord, nearly 2,000 years ago. And here it is, just as relevant then or relevant today as it was then, Lord. And that is because it is your inspired word, it is your holy word, it is for your people. It is for our identity as Christians. It is for understanding the riches, the unsearchable riches of salvation in Jesus Christ. That we have union. We have union with him by faith and faith alone. We thank you for this. And as a result, we also have communion. We have fellowship with you. We have a direct relationship with you, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior. We thank you for all of this, and we pray now for the the unpacking of these riches that we have here before us in this book. We pray for great, uh, great change, great uh, results, transformation of our time in this book over the next several months, Lord. We also pray for our little theologians, our children who are here today, Lord. We pray that you too would transform their hearts through the preaching of your word. We confess our great need for this, Lord. ...that we cannot understand these things except you reveal them to us from heaven. And we pray and ask now for your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. No two words are more important in the whole of our faith than grace and peace. So writes Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Ephesians. He continues by saying this, Yet how lightly we tend to drop them off our tongues without stopping to consider what they mean. Grace is the beginning of our faith. Peace is the end of our faith. Grace is the fountain, the spring, the source. It is that particular place in the mountain from which the mighty river you see rolling into the sea starts. Without it, there would be nothing. Grace is the origin, the source, the fount of everything in the Christian life. But what does the Christian life mean? What is it meant to produce? The answer is peace. So we have the source, and there we have the the source leading into the seed, the beginning, the end, the initiation, the purpose for which it all was meant and designed. It is essential for us, therefore, to carry these two words in our mind, Lloyd-Jones says, because within them, everything is included, grace and peace. So writes Martin Lloyd-Jones, the awesome 20th century British preacher, in his commentary on the opening words of Ephesians. Paul's legendary letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus, this letter that was initially sent to Ephesus, but likely was meant to be circulated among all the churches because of its stunning and magnificent content. Paul says that it's written to the saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The reason we're only looking at the first two verses today is because even in, these were, even in these two verses here, Paul's opening words, as Lloyd-Jones said about grace and peace, the words saint, faithful, believers in Christ Jesus, all of these rich words that we are well familiar with, but we don't often take enough time to sit and consider They beg for us to consider today their rich implications for us as a church. This is a book, Ephesians, in the Bible that is, quote, like the heart in the midst of the body. I put that meditation there at the beginning of our service in your bulletin for you. Thomas Goodwin says this, that Ephesians is like the heart in the midst of the body, the prime seat and fountain, the fullest, the quintessential mysteries of christ is what thomas goodwin said in his commentary john calvin called it the doctrine of the gospel in its purest form and it's this gospel calvin will say that the lord governs and protects his church by the english poet samuel taylor coleridge called paul's letter to the ephesians quote the divinest composition that man has ever written John Stott wrote that the letter to the Ephesians is marvelously concise, yet comprehensively a summary of the Christian good news and all of its implications. Nobody, Stott says, can read this book without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to live consistently with that wonder. And another commentator put it like this. Listen to this. Pound for pound... Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. Within the history of Christianity, only the Psalms, the Gospel of John, and Romans have been so instrumental in shaping the life and thought of Christians. But all three of these works are much longer than the few pages of this letter. Ephesians has justly been described as the quote Switzerland of the New Testament. Not really sure what that means, but it sounded good. It's called, quote, the crown and climax of Pauline theology and, quote, one of the divinest compositions of man. I read that to you earlier. The explanation of the gospel and the life with Christ provided here is powerful and direct. And if read receptively, this commentator says, it is a bombshell, end quote. Now, I want to tell you that it was definitely a bombshell for me as a 21-year-old new Christian i had never read the book of Ephesians before. I'd grown up in church. I was religious all growing up, but I had no spiritual life within me. And then God saved me in a, in a dramatic fashion in terms of ripping me out of a life of sin, uh, addiction, arrest. And as a 21-year-old, brand-new Christian, I turned to the book of Ephesians, and I read the opening verses And I read the opening verses where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in his beloved son. And I will never forget, as a 21-year-old new believer, the utter amazement that I felt as I read those words for the first time. Words that capture the absolute sovereignty, the absolute majesty of God in salvation. And as you continue to read in Ephesians and When we come to the beginning of chapter 2, there we have on the flip side, we have on the flip side the stunning, the stunning description that Paul gives us of us as human beings and our condition outside of Christ. He describes us apart from God, apart from Jesus. And what he says there, friends, you will not hear anywhere else, especially in 2021. Paul says in chapter 2 that we come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. That we are without God and without hope in the world. And that leaves us by nature, Paul says, as children of wrath, like all of mankind is. And complicating our predicament, the book of Ephesians will lay out that it's not just our willful rebellion against God. But it's also that there is a malevolent spiritual force of evil against us. What Paul says in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, he says. The cosmic powers over this present darkness. These are spiritual forces of evil that are actively trying to keep us suppressed against God and his truth. And as I said, that is something that you will not hear anywhere else except in scripture. And yet when we look out at our world, what do we see? We see a world without hope. We see a world without God. We see a world full of hostility and conflict. We see the spiritual forces of evil at work just as Paul lays out for us. But the thing that I want to make clear is that what is even more stunning about this is that this letter, this letter describes that in spite of that, in spite of Our sin sin and misery before God, in spite of the, the spiritual forces of demon, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself set against God's people, set against mankind. In spite of all of that, this letter describes this. God reaching out to those who are without hope and without him. God reaching out and recreating you and I you, you recreating and transforming those that he reaches out and pulls out, pulls up out of their despair he takes us and he transforms us into a new society called the church and the bible says it calls this act reconciliation reconciliation and you see that's the big idea in ephesians that amidst the chaos and the confusion of our world. Amidst the hardship and the suffering of this world. We can be sure of this friends. That God is at work. That God is at work. And that he is reconciling all things to himself. So that one, thing, so that one day all things will become new. Now what if, what if this? What if that means that everything that is broken... Not only out there, but everything that's broken in here and in here is one day going to be made new. And the way that you and I can know that is that God has already started the process of reconciliation. He's already started the process of reconciliation between me and him, between you and him. And what we'll see as we, as we go through Ephesians is that this reconciling power It can not only kill the sin in our life, but it can also kill the hostility within me. It can heal the fractured places within me and within you. It can clean the dirtiness and the filthiness that no one else knows about me except me and God. And God can cleanse me of that. God can rid you and I of our shame and our guilt. This is the doctrine of reconciliation. And that may sound a little too good to be true, but here's the the caveat that's missing in what I've said so far. God is reconciling all things, including you and I, because he loves you and I. His motivation is love for his people. Love that will lead you and I to praise him for the glory of his grace. And that's what this book is ultimately about. For you and I to understand the great love with which God has loved you and me. The love that he has loved you, the love from before the foundation of the world. And that we would never be the same coming to understand that. And Paul says that in chapter 3, that the aim of, of, of What he's writing and the aim of the prayers that he prays is that we would know the love of Christ, he says in chapter 3, that surpasses knowledge. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is an astounding book. And may God unlock unlock the riches of this book for us as we go through it together. Now we're going to see that right away in his greeting in verses 1 and 2. What we have here in verses 1 and 2 is Paul preparing us with appetizers. Appetizers so that we are ready, so that that we are hungry for more. We are ready for the extraordinary meal he is about to set before us and the rest of this book. And by appetizers, he wants us to sample, to taste what he's about to say in verses 3 through 14. In other words we must taste or we must understand three crucial areas here in these first two verses, three crucial areas of Christian doctrine or Christian theology in order to understand God's work of reconciliation in the world. And here's what we need in order to understand. We need to understand the God-centered worldview that Paul puts forth. We need to understand our God-centered identity that Paul puts forth. And thirdly, we need to understand the God-centered communion that we have as believers. Worldview, identity, and communion. Now, little theologians, here's what I'd like for you to draw today. And actually, I want you to write something today. I want, if, if you were writing, kids, if you were writing a letter to your church, to Westside Church, how would you start your letter? What would be your greeting to your church here at Westside? So let's say you go on a trip and you're riding back to your church. What would you say in your greeting? Now here are the questions, kids. As you, as you work on your greeting, be listening for the answers to these questions, kids. What is our God-centered worldview? What is our God-centered identity as Christians? And what is our God-centered communion that we have? What is our worldview? What is our identity? And what is our communion? Now... We'll see the God-centeredness right away in the greeting that Paul lays out. Verse 1, look at it with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now here's what I want you to see. The starting point, the foundation, what we would call the presupposition of Paul's theology. In other words, what is informing Paul's theology? What is informing what he's writing? Is that he is an apostle. He is an apostle, meaning a messenger or an emissary. Who is sent with an authoritative message. And that message doesn't originate with Paul. But it comes from the one who sent him, he says here. The Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he says. So Paul's, Paul's foundation for his worldview. His, his view, what he's going to unpack begins with God. It begins with God. And as we'll see as as we go throughout this book, everything for the Christian begins and ends with God. And what this means for us practically, friends, is that we do not start with ourselves. We do not start with ourselves and work our way up to God, but rather we start with him and him coming down to us in love. And that's an apt description for what grace is, by the way. God coming down to us in love. And this coming down, this is the language of condescending. And keeping that in mind, that two things we need to, to remember when we think about God's grace, his condescending to us in love. We need to keep in mind that the creator and the creature distinction between us and God, which means that God is over us as creator. As creator he is over us and he is not subject to our thoughts to our opinions or our will but rather we are subject to his and the second thing is the holy unholy distinction meaning that god is in a category all to himself as the holy one there is god and then there is everything else this is what this is what our catechism is trying to communicate when it says or when it asks the question what is god and it and the, the answer is God is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The point is this that when you start there, then you then you understand you understand your relationship with God rightly, as John Calvin said. John Calvin said that we cannot know ourselves correctly as creatures unless we first know our Creator. And what that means is that God has absolute rights over you and I. He has absolute rights over you and I. And yet, what Paul is saying here is that God, the God who is holy, the God who is creator, and and we are distinct from him in that we are creatures, in that we are unholy, that God, friends, has moved towards you. And towards me. He has moved towards us. Which is absolutely incredible. Paul has been sent with a message of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And when Paul says that, when he says that he has been called to be an apostle by the will of God. It's because God wanted him to be an apostle. And what we'll notice here right away in chapter 1 of Ephesians in verses 3 through 14, he'll speak of the will of God again and again and again in these verses. And what I want you to note, take note of with that, is that what Paul is focusing on when he says the will of God, he's not talking about us finding the will of God, which is popular in some circles in our day. That's not what Paul is emphasizing. Paul is emphasizing God's purpose, his action for humanity. To the praise of his glory. He is emphasizing the will of God. For the glory of God. For his own will. And this must be our. This is where we must start with. With this letter. We must understand. The centrality of who God is. And rightly see who God is friends. So here's a question for you and I. Question for us to consider. Is. Is. Is this approach, is Paul's approach, this God-centered worldview, is that that our worldview? Is that how we approach our life? Is Is that how we start our life, our thinking? Do we start with God and his will over us? Or do we start with our will over him? What about our faith, our understanding of the Bible? Who has the authority in that relationship? Does God and his word stand over you in authority, or do you stand over him and his word in authority? What about our thinking and our understanding of the world and our lives in it as Christians? Do we start with God and understanding that, or do we look around and we're more influenced by what we see on TV and the internet? And that's what informs our worldview. How do we approach such things? An example of a common way to approach in our day is with feeling and emotion. Do we begin with our feelings and emotions, which in the moment they can seem so visceral, they can seem so real and so raw, but upon further reflection, I know that my feelings are not a reliable interpreter of your feelings and emotions, because your feelings and emotions may be and often are completely different from mine. And the reason I bring that up is because we are living in an age that is driven by feeling and emotion, are we not? And I want you to see the, faulty, the, the faultiness of that lens for interpreting the world. It is a faulty lens for interpreting, particularly those things which are immaterial in nature like morality. If we, allow, if we allow our feelings to tell us what is moral and what is immoral, then we are essentially sailing without a rudder. We are driving without brakes. We are flying without flaps. You can go for a while, but eventually you're not going to be able to stop that train until it does what? Crashes. We are missing, as a society, friends, we are missing the rudder of objective truth. We are missing the break of objective standards to measure claims by, to reel in claims that are outside of that. And here's what the point that I'm making. Just like how we take our cars to the mechanic when the check engine light is on, so too must we take our feelings and our emotions, not to mention our morals, we take them back to the quote-unquote mechanic the one that they originated from, the authority on such matters. You may recall when we talked about the Christian worldview back in the fall, how our starting point, our starting point must be God as he is revealed in scripture. Our starting point as Christians is the word of God. Because only that can account for everything we experience, including things like morality, things like our feelings. Otherwise, if we don't do that, we are not living in consistent, we are not living in consistency with reality. And as a result, we're going to struggle in whatever area where God is not the starting point for us. What Paul will say in chapter four, he calls being tossed to and fro by the waves and winds of human opinion, by human cunning, by human craftiness, Paul says. Paul will say in chapter four: that's the mark of spiritual immaturity. The mark of maturity is being filled with the knowledge of God and his son. And we see right here how vital that was for Paul in his letter. A God-centered starting point. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary about this. He says, quote, The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God and to enable us to see our true relationship to him. And that is the great theme of Ephesians. It holds us face to face with God and what God is and what God has done. And it emphasizes throughout the glory and the greatness of God. God the eternal one, God the everlasting, God overall and the indescribable glory of God in quote. Little theologians, that is what a God-centered worldview is in a nutshell. The indescribable glory of God over all things. We start with God in His Word, and we never leave that starting point. We We don't exchange it for something else, we hold fast to it. The second thing that we must understand is our God centered identity that Paul says here in these two verses. Did you catch that? Three things that he said, three different descriptions of our identity as Christians. He says, We are saints, he says, We are faithful. And when he says that, he's talking about, essentially, we are believers. And then what was the third thing he said? Believers in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's description, his definition of what it means to be a Christian. Or we could say the Christian identity. Now, we live in a world that is fractured and divided by the question of identity do we not at every level individual family social civil political national at every level it is subject to the question of identity as a matter of fact the importance of identity is so great in our day now that whereas it used to be the question of identity The the immediate question that you you would think of would be, who am I? That was the defining question. But now, you know what the defining question is? Who do I feel that I am? Who do I feel that I am? That is the definitional and foundational question for identity today. And this is why having a God-centered worldview is critically important, friends. Because it seeks to answer the identity question, how? By starting with the one who our identity is inseparable from. The one who not only made us, but made us in his image. The one who gave us our humanity, and then he defined that humanity for us. Male and female, after his image, he created them. And our world is lost on this. We're lost. And we're heading further and further out to sea, away from God's created order, away from God's will. And the further away that we get from that, the more chaos and confusion there will be. And the more division, the more conflict, the more hostility there will be. And that is because no human solution, no human solution, no human answer can reconcile us. No human answer, no human solution can fix what's wrong with you and I. What's wrong with our identity? Only God can, friends. Only God can. And that's the God-centered identity that we have that starts with God is found in jesus and it provides it provides reconciliation to god it provides grace and peace from god to us we have communion we have fellowship with him the christian identity starts with god and him making us saints paul says to the saints who are in ephesus which if you've read Acts 19, if you know anything about ancient Ephesus, that would be the, l- the last place you'd expect to find saints. Ephesus was a highly pagan and ungodly place. It was, of course, a Gentile city under Roman rule. Life in Ephesus revolved around the worship of a goddess named Artemis, or Diana as she was known in the Roman world. And to give you an idea of the zeal and the devotion of this city, I want you to think of some of the great sports teams, or sports cities, sports towns in our nation, or teams. You can think about the Alabama Crimson Tide football team and how obnoxious their fans are. That's a joke. The, the, the team and the city I thought of, however, was Philadelphia. Philadelphia, which is known for its sports teams... The Eagles, the Phillies, the 76ers. But you know what Philadelphia is is known for even more? Their fans. And at least in the NFL, with the Eagles, they are the fans that are known for cheering when a visitor player gets hurt, throwing trash on the field when their team is trash, which thankfully is a lot, and most famously, they're the fans who booed Santa Claus off the field. Those are, those are Philadelphia fans. They are 100% fanatical about their beloved eagles. And that was Ephesus in the first century. They were fanatical about Artemis. As a matter of fact, when Paul was there and the gospel started to spread and people were being converted, the, mer- the merchant shops of Artemis were not too happy about it they were watching folks burn their Artemis jerseys so to speak the playbooks for how they could do magic like Artemis. and the city all the fans flood the amphitheater there and they start chanting literally like a football stadium great is Artemius of the ephesians great is Artemius of the ephesians and they were doing that in an attempt to stop paul in the gospel the parallels with modern sports are quite striking when you think about it but that is who has been made a saint by God they've been called out of their paganism and they've been set apart from God they are the recipients of this monumental letter and what Paul says about their identity is that they are they have been reconciled to God and they have been set apart by god they have been called out of their paganism and they have been set apart as god's people and that is true for them friends and it's true for us as well we are saints we are saints not because of anything done by us but because we have been called we have been reconciled we have been set apart by god and that work will never be undone and why why will that work never be undone Because of where our identity resides. In Christ Jesus, Paul says. The faithful, the believing ones, those who believe are in Christ Jesus. That's literally what it says there in verse 2. And here we come to one of the most profound truths in Paul's letter. Found in verse 2 and then 14 more times in this letter. When Paul will talk about us being in Christ or being in him, he'll say. And here he's talking about union with Jesus. And what that means is essentially this. Little theologians, what is our our God-centered identity? It's that we belong to Jesus. We belong to him. We belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood. And he has delivered you and I from the power and the tyranny of the devil. And he watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head, from my head, apart from the will of his father and our father in heaven. And that is because we belong to Jesus. Your identity is in Christ, Christian. We are in him and he is in us. We belong to him like a vine and a branch, like branches and a vine. And Jesus promises, just as Paul will make clear in this letter, that apart from from Jesus, we can do nothing. We are nothing apart from our union with Christ. But with him, with him, we are changed. With him, we are set apart. With him, we are alive. So here's a question for you. How are you doing this week in your faith? How are you doing with the events in our country? Are you feeling weak and helpless? Are you overwhelmed with fear and anxiety? Are you filled with frustration and anger? How are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing with life in 2021? Remember your identity. You belong to Jesus. You belong to him. And therefore, who he is, he is for you, Christian. For us who are feeling weak and helpless, Jesus is your good shepherd who willingly laid down his life to make you his very own. Overwhelmed by darkness, by the darkness in our world, he is your light, Look nowhere else for his light, for he will never be put out. Are you confused about the times? Are you confused about worldview? Are you confused about identity? Jesus is the way. He is the door. He is the one and the only son from the Father. He is full of grace and truth. Are you tempted to believe the lie that worshiping and serving created things, money, success, sex, children, parenting, marriage? Are you tempted to believe that those things, that it's better to serve those than the living God? Jesus is the truth in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen to him. Do you need spiritual sustenance? Are you you dry in your walk? Are you lethargic? Jesus is the bread of life. Are you feeling insecure? He is your righteousness before God and men. Are you fearful of the unknown? Are you fearful of death? He is your resurrection. Are you dealing with guilt? Are you dealing with shame? You belong to Jesus, friends. You are connected to him and in him, That guilt and that shame were paid in full in his death for you so that you could be united to him. They were wiped away by him. You are his and he is yours. And that means, lastly, friends, because of that, you and I, we are invited to God-centered communion with him and his father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the animus, all of the hostility, all of our failures to love him, all of our failures to worship him, all of our failures to know and serve him, the guilt that we feel, that's only one-sided, friends. We have fellowship with God who is our Father and the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has grace for you. He has peace for you. So that we can come with our failures and loss. We can come with our fears. We can come with our anger, our lust, our discontentment. We can come. And you know what? We can be received by him. By the father who loves us from before the foundation of the world. By the son who took every single failures of ours upon himself. And by the Spirit who unites us to Jesus and humbly reminds us, grace is yours. Peace is yours. Carry them with you because within them, everything is included. You are his. He is yours. That is the good news that those two words, grace and peace, deliver to you and I today. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this marvelous passage in word. We thank you for the God-centeredness of our faith, that you give us the right view of the world, that you give us the right identity in the world, and that you give us the right communion, the right fellowship that we could never have on our own. We thank you for all of this, and we thank you that here now at this table, we get to, by faith and by the power of your spirit, we get to experience that fellowship here and now. We pray that you would bless... Uh, This meal as we begin to partake, in Jesus' name, amen.